So let's uh, let's take a moment. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer, and then we'll jump right in. If that's all right, everybody. Father, we thank you for the mercy that you show to us every day. And Father, how wonderful it is to know that you've given us your word to follow, to implement, to do. Uh, encourage us to do so. Give us courage where we lack it, Lord, and that we would understand that serving you, pleasing you, bringing a smile to your face is the greatest thing we could ever hope for in our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we are in uh, 2 Kings 23. And you may say, this is Deuteronomy class. Why in the world are we in 2 Kings 23? The reason is, is because the command was given that whenever the children of Israel go into the promised land, that they are to tear down everything that represents pagan worship. They are to absolutely pulverize it, burn it, get rid of it, throw it away, uh, and also to destroy all of the inhabitants in the land, which to us seems like an extremely uh, fierce command to go on. But here's the reason why. God does not want His children to be influenced by anything else but Him. And he knows that if any remnants of influence of a pagan culture are around, they will easily follow it. Now, I know that all of us in our heart of hearts would sit here and say, if I could absolutely keep all dark and evil influences from my children at any cost, I would make that bet. I would take that cost in order to keep them as pure and as out of harm's way as I possibly could. God understands. God does the same thing. Uh, and so that's why he commands that. Now, what's interesting about this is, is we are actually seeing somebody believing God, taking him at his word, and going through. And if you remember, King Josiah, we're right in 2 Kings, they find the law, they come, they read the law to him. He is immediately overcome, he repents. And he begins instituting reforms. And if you remember, he stood in front of the temple. He gathered all the people who were the leaders of Israel together. And he began implementing a plan to cleanse the land of all evil influences, pagan worship, demon activity, all of that stuff. He is getting rid of every bit of it. And that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing what it looks like for somebody to actually hear the law of God and to follow the law of God and to be blessed because of it. Now... Is God not still going to destroy the land? Yes? Yeah. Yes, he is. He is going to have Israel, or sorry, forgive me, Judah, southern kingdom, led captive. The Babylonians are going to come in and do that. But because of Josiah's movement here, because of his response to God's word, God is going to put it on hold. And this is a real good idea to think about as far as when we talk about how God's plan with Israel is, per, is currently postponed until the church age takes place and at the rapture of the church, Israel is brought into the forefront of his prophetic plan. It's no different here. Because of the obedience that's going on, God can postpone certain things in history and yet still remain faithful to his word. So we're seeing this at this moment. Now look at chapter 23, verse 1. Then the king sent, and they gathered to him all the elders of Judah and of Jerusalem. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, the temple, and all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with him, and the priests and the prophets and all the people, both great and small. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which was found in the house of Yahweh. 
The king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before Yahweh to walk after Yahweh, to keep his commands and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul. Notice it wasn't just some sort of mechanical obedience. It was a conviction that was meant to penetrate the heart. Uh, If God has been teaching me anything lately, it's that I can serve him all day long, but if I'm not humble, I'm not serving him. That is a big lesson to learn. It is a hard lesson for me to learn. Uh, I've often sit here and wondered why I don't come to him more often. And the only, only answer that I have is because I am a prideful individual. That's the reason why. I think that my relationship with God is okay when actually he desires me to be lower still, lower still before him. So notice, heart, soul has to be involved. And remember, when the Bible uses the word soul more times than not, it's speaking of your very life, how you live your life. To carry out the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people, notice that, all the people entered into the covenant. Verse 4. Then the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priests of the second order and the doorkeepers to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels that were made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the host of heaven. And he burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. In other words, carried them beyond the border of Judah into what was previously known as the place of Israel. Bethel being meaning the house of God, where God met Jacob there. He called it Bethel, uh, the whole deal. Real quick, that word Asherah in verse 4. If you've got a marginal note there, a wooden symbol of a female deity. Uh, and so throughout every time that's brought up. It's the same type of idea is connected with Asherim that we are looking at in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 3. It's the same type of idea. It's almost like a totem pole of pagan worship is what it is. And it's pretty vile and disgusting, and there's reasons why we don't show pictures of it. By the way, speaking of pictures, I got maps. And I got large maps. And I'm going to go get them laminated tomorrow. I'm hoping I can get a couple of them laminated so I can stick up here and find a way to do that. Yeah. Magnetic. I love it. So we're going to make it happen. It's going to be good. Uh, So I'm very excited about that. Verse 5. He did away with the idolatrous priests whom the kings of Judah had appointed to burn incense in the high places. Now, let me give you this real quick. You're going to see this phrase mentioned over and over, the kings of Judah, the kings of Judah, the kings of Judah. The reason why you're going to see this is there are three kings in particular and one king especially that really drove the Lord to great anger to where he caused the captivity to come in and take them away later. Let me give those three to you. Ahaz... A-H-A-Z, we're going to see his name brought up a little bit later, Ahaz, Manasseh, and Manasseh is the king that the Lord had the greatest problem with, Uh, M-A-N-A-S-S-E-H, Manasseh, and Ammon, A-M-O-N, A-M-O-N, Ammon, those three kings during this time were the ones who were the most rotten, we can say it that way, in Judah. If you remember, because of what had gone on in the northern kingdom of Israel, and because they'd set up essentially pagan places to worship that weren't the temple where God designated worship, they were led astray with idolatry pretty quickly. Judah held out a lot more hope. However, it did have terrible kings, bad kings, in the midst of all of this, and these are the three kings, Manasseh especially, the ones that incited the anger of the Lord and his wrath to be against them and to invite the captivity of Babylon. So just so you know that, when you see the kings of Judah, this is usually the three that it's speaking about unless context directs you to one in particular. 
So it says, uh, verse 5, He did away with the idolatrous priests whom the kings of Judah uh, had appointed to burn incense in the high places in the cities of Judah and in the surrounding area of Jerusalem. Also those who burned incense to Baal, to the sun, and to the moon, and to the constellations, and to all the hosts of heaven. Now, real quick, if you wouldn't mind, put your hand here for just a second, and turn back to Deuteronomy 5. I think it's 5. Watch, I'll be wrong. It's not 5, it's 4. Forgive me. And I just want to read this little section for you. Uh, chapter 4, verses 15 through 19. Watch this. Deuteronomy 4, verses 15 through 19. So, likeness. And make a graven image for yourself in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the sky, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water below the earth. And beware not to lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven. So in other words, angelic worship and especially demon worship. And be drawn away and worship them and serve them, those which Yahweh your Elohim has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. So notice, the, the, the great exchange in any situation that takes place is forfeiting a fellowship relationship with the Creator because you would rather surround yourself with remnants of creatures. That's the idea. Whether it be we're esteeming a certain figure, uh, whether it be Kanye, whether it be Donald Trump, whether it be whatever it is that we want to try to put up and promote, it's the idea of I'm essentially exchanging a relationship or the great fellowship intimacy that I could have with the Creator in exchange for something else that He's created. It's no different with the idea of sun gods, moon gods. And that's exactly what we see the problem is. Here are these guys carrying out of the temple all of these objects of worship that they had filled. Instead of, instead of worship to Yahweh, they had filled the temple with all of this mess. And so... Uh, when you see there, uh, let's see here, back to Second uh, Kings 23. Uh, when you see there in verse 5, and you see the idea of burning incense to Baal, to the sun, to the moon, to the constellations, and to all the hosts of heaven, you're seeing a direct violation of what was clearly said there in Deuteronomy 4. You see just how far away from the law they had gotten, and if they would have had the law all this time, hopefully they would have been more uh, obedient to it. Verse 6. He brought out the Asherah, same thing as the Asherim, what we saw before in verse 4, from the house of Yahweh outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron, and burned it at the brook Kidron, and ground it to dust, he pulverized it, and threw its dust on the graves of the common people. Uh, the sons of the people, I, I don't really understand what that phrase is there for and why it's designated that way. It could be because of, of they were um, the descendants of people who had so defiled for such a long time because we're, we're not really for sure how long they were without the law. And no, I didn't get a chance to look that up. I'm so sorry. But that's something I was supposed to do. Verse 7, He also broke down the house of the male cult prostitutes which were in the house of Yahweh where the women were weaving hangings 
for the Asherah. Now, not only was there sexual perversion going on, and it probably wasn't just male. If you notice that males were, were it's, it's italicized in your text, so it's something that was brought in there. But chances are it's male and females. But they had also, the ladies had set up a sewing shop. The ladies were cross-stitching the false gods in God's house. That's how messed up we're getting. Okay? I don't know if they had their singer sewing machines out or whatever, but they had, they're making tapestries. Something. I mean, they're, 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 we're devising ways, we're merchandising ways in order to worship these false deities. What's interesting about this word cult prostitutes here is the literal translation of it in Hebrew means the separate ones. I don't know what that means, but obviously they were probably in some way separated from society. What do you have, Laverne? You're talking about verse 7? Sodomites. Okay, so be the same same idea. You got the King James? No. Um, what is this? Scorpio. Scorpio. Okay. It's, it's probably the King James translation is what I'm saying. Yeah. Okay. For, his, for his study notes, yes, but it's probably still the King James translation. And the King, and the King James translation is much more blunt about that than our modern translations are. But yeah, that's exactly what's going on there. And again, like we talked about. Yeah, what was the word you used? Uh, uh, the separate ones is the literal translation of what it is. Cult something, you said? Cult prostitutes. C-U-L-T. Cult. Oh, okay. Yeah, cult. Baby horse. No, that's okay. No, not a cult. That's actually a little bit later in here. No cult prostitutes here. So, but remember, one thing that, one thing that characterizes... Uh, false worship, spiritist, uh, or evil-enhanced worship, demonic worship, is always the distortion of a sexual relationship. Remember that. Anytime that you hear about that going on anywhere, there's something demonic that's going on behind it. Verse 8, Then he brought all the priests from the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had burned incense, from Geba to Beersheba. Now, real quick, Geba would be the far northern boundary of, of uh, Judah at that time, so it had been right before you would cross over and come into where Bethel is. Excuse me, Beersheba would be the far southern border, and it's about 35 miles southwest of where we would know Bethlehem to be, that type of idea. So remember, Judah wasn't a huge province. In fact, from what I understand, all of Israel is about a third of the size of San, Ber- San Bernardino County in California. That's from what I understand. It's not a big place. So when we talked about, like we saw today, where Moses is allowed to go up on the mountain, and he's allowed to look out. You know, here's the river before him. He can see the Mediterranean Sea. He can look to the to the north and to the south, and he can see the outspread of the land. That's not very far-fetched to think about if he was up high enough in elevation to where he could see how blessed that land was. In fact, uh, I don't know if you ever get a chance to go over and see Israel. I know that you've been there. Uh, but, but an opportunity to get up maybe in a plane and just to look over the entire bit of the land it could probably give you a, a type of, uh, of idea of just how exactly small it is. And it's very interesting to think that those are the people that God chose and what God is going to do in ruling the world from that place. So amazing stuff. <clears throat> but anyway, he went all over all of the high places. And it's interesting that it uses the word defiled. Josiah defiled the high places. Now, we would all sit here and we go, wait a second, the high places were places of defiling. But notice, it's almost like a payback kind of thing. Josiah's going in and he is he's making these places of worship null and void. It says he broke down their high places of the gates 
which were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were on uh, one's left at the city. In fact, the governor of the city in any of the gates usually had a dwelling place that was to the left as you came into the city there. What, what this is probably is here with the idea of broken down high places is probably better translated shrines, that they, that they actually had shrines out in front of the governor's place, out in front to the left of the city. It says, verse 9, Nevertheless, the priests of the high places did not go up to the altar of Yahweh in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brothers. Now, this has been confusing for some people. There are actually some commentators that believe that Israel's idolatry was not absolute, that they were, they were still worshiping Yahweh. They were just doing it in ways that he didn't approve of. I completely disagree with that because of the recurrence of the words Baal, Asherim, those types of things. It seems that they had just made Yahweh one of many gods, and they had become, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, not pantheistic. Um, was it pantheistic? No. I can't remember what the name is. It's not monotheistic. I guess it would be pantheistic. Yeah. What am I thinking then that I'm not saying? doesn't matter what I'm thinking, what I'm not saying. I'm not saying it. But anyway, um, what is it? Polytheistic. Polytheistic. That's what it is. It's not pantheistic. It's polytheistic. My bad. Sorry. Thank you. Yes. Uh, I, if anything happened, polytheism had come. But whatever it is, the creator had been dumbed down to be like other created things. Now, think for a second real quick. This is important. What are the representation of these idols? What are they really representing? Demons. They are. In fact, when you look at something like Psalm 82... And you find that God meets with the divine council. That's what he's doing. He's having a mass meeting. He's having a convention hearing with demons, with celestial beings, probably both good and bad angels. Laverne. We have that today. Do I want to know where you're going with this? Guadalupe. Oh, Lady Guadalupe, yes. Yes, in fact, something if you wouldn't mind to keep in your prayers, uh, and I know this is like a side thing here. I'll pause this for All right. So... Um, Anyway, verse 9, Nevertheless, the priests of the high places did not go up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem. Now, they're still Levitical priests. They could not go up, I believe, because they defiled themselves in the situation. But it's very interesting. If you look at something, if you just want to jot this down and look at it sometime, uh, I believe it's Leviticus 17, uh, verses uh, 21 and 22. It actually deals with Levites who had some sort of physical defect whether they had a crippled hand, something like that, they, even something like eczema, if they had that or whatever, uh, they were considered not fit to serve the Lord in a priestly capacity. Uh, I don't know that that was any charge against them personally as much as it was as trying to symbolize the idea of perfection standing in the Lord's presence. But what you find is, is that the priests have defiled themselves in such a way so they couldn't do that. However, but they ate unleavened bread among the brothers. In other words, they still kept up the dietary restrictions of the Levites. They just weren't allowed to serve in that capacity anymore after Joshua came in and gave reform. So that's just a little thing off to the side. I don't know if it holds any great significance for you. But it's not just put there for no reason whatsoever. Verse 10. He also defiled Topheth. Topheth is very interesting, and here's the reason why. Which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no man might make his son or his daughter pass through the fire for Molech. So notice we have another false god, false deity, that's been brought into this situation. Molech is usually depicted as a three-story owl, is what it is. Uh, and and the, the chosen method of worship for Molech was to burn your children. Uh, to actually sacrifice your children and burn them. In fact, they would have some hands that were out like this, and they would heat them up red hot 
and they would just toss their children down on there hoping that that God would bless them. The reason why it's called Topheth is because T-O-P-H, transliterated from Hebrew into English, T-O-P-H actually is the word for drum. And what would happen so that they would drown out the screams and the cries of the children as they were dying uh, in this sacrifice. I know it's all horrible. It's a horrible thing to think about. But they would actually beat these drums really hard in order to drown out those cries. Well, let me ask you a question. What type of false religious groups are what, you know considered to be part of their culture? You don't have to say anything. I'm sure we can all put it together. Use drums in order to be a type of worship unto spirits. It doesn't take long to put that kind of stuff together and realize that this is... This is a practice that's often been carried down. Now, does that mean that drummers are bad and evil? No, leave Art alone. <laughs> He's okay, right? But, but you, you go into some Southern Baptist churches, they think if you had drums in, you've defiled the sanctuary. So, anyway, but moving into this, the valley, here's the reason why the Valley of Hinnom is very important. It's because the Valley of Hinnom is also what is known in the New Testament as Gehenna. Okay, so whenever you see that Jesus says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cast it off, you know, to cut it off and cast it from you, for it is better for you to enter into life maimed than for your whole body to be thrown into Gehenna. And many people just go ahead and they translate that as hell. I would make a case to you that that is definitely not hell, but it is talking about some sort of punishment uh, or some sort of retribution, divine retribution that you would receive for entertaining ongoing sin in your life. Now you can study that out. There's all kinds of people that believe across the board about that whole idea. But when Jesus said the word Gehenna, it put in the picture of the mind of a first century Jewish Christian, especially because he's talking to the disciples in the Sermon on the Mount when he says that. This idea of what the Valley of Hinnom was, and it was actually located to the east of Jerusalem. It's the trash dump where they took all their refuse and their rubbish and they threw it. And the reason is because nobody wanted to live there because they knew the history of the place that that's where people used to burn their children. So they just considered it the trash dump, confined it to that, wanted nothing else to do with it. So it says here, uh, verse 11, he did away with the horses, there's your horses, Laverne, uh, which the kings of Judah, now remember that phrase, had given to the sun. So in other words, they had these ornate stallions that were made up that would have sun worship. In fact, it was believed at this time that they would actually have metal dials that would be engraved and would be fastened to either live horses' heads or to these sculpted horses' heads in order to symbolize that they were devoted to the sun god. Now, where did they get this worship from the sun god from? From Egypt, from Ra. We know this. That was one of the biggest things. That's what makes the plague of darkness all over the land. And only the children of Israel have light so profound. It's the idea that it lasted for three days and nobody could move. It was a direct assault against Ra and his dominance in their thinking. No, no, no. He doesn't control the light. God controls the light. Very interesting to think about that. So notice, this is a pullover. This is, this is all of this being pulled over from Egypt. Notice it was at the entrance of the house of Yahweh that actually set it up at the entrance of the temple. By the chamber of Nathan Malik, the official, which was in the precincts, and he burned the chariots of the sun with fire. So whether they were real horses that had chariots that were available to them, and of course we know about everybody riding around chariots and they're all prestigious and doing the political wave or whatever that kind of thing. <laughs> but regardless of whether it was carved beings or real, uh, carved horses or real horses, doesn't matter, it's all got to go, it's all devoted to destruction. Verse 12, the altars which were on the roof, the upper chamber of Ahaz. There's one of the one of the kings of Judah that we're upset with. In other words, Ahaz was the king that instituted that these temples should be put in this place on top of the roof. 
It says here, which the kings of Judah had made in the altars which Manasseh, there's the one that the Lord was really upset with, had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord, the king broke down. Now, what were the courts of the house of the Lord? Do we know? Well, the outer court would have been one of them. In fact, do this. Take, take for a moment and, and see if you can find a map in the back of your Bible. Usually they have a depiction of the temple and how it's laid out by itself. See if you can find one. Again, we need those maps. Good gravy. While you're looking, Jeremy, if I might say when the uh, Jews were headed for the concentration camps, when they would, the train tracks would go past a church, they mm-hmm. would yell, hell, yell. And so the church... Knew the schedule of training and they would schedule their hymns at that time and sing loud so they didn't have to hear them. Kind yeah. of a drum like thing. Yeah. Yep. And and here's what's and here's another thing that's interesting. Did anybody find the map in the back? Anybody got a good map of the temple in the back? No one does. We all need better Bibles. What is wrong with this? I don't have These one. maps are obviously not inspired of the Lord. Regardless. <laughs> You had an outer court, uh, which was reserved for the Gentiles, and then you had an inner court where Jews only could go, is the idea. Uh, And so notice, he took both of these courts, whether you were a proselyte in their culture, essentially is what it would be, uh, because they wouldn't have been full-blown with Roman control and things like that. But regardless, uh, Manasseh went as far as to make sure that both of those courts of the temple were set up. I went last week, please don't judge me, uh, last week or the week before, I can't remember, uh, the week before or something like that, uh, to Kansas City to the Council on Dispensational Hermeneutics. Man, that sounds nerdy. Um, And it was too. But somebody there gave a very interesting paper uh, because it was talking all about the idea of social justice and they actually linked a lot of the propaganda in uh, Martin Luther's uh, later life with what ended up uh, starting the anti-Semitism that spread amongst Germany uh, in that time that led to Hitler's rise to power. It was very interesting because I've always wondered if anybody had ever done anything on a connection of that, uh, you know, and if I'd come across something reading. Somebody actually brought it up, and so I've got their paper that I need to read through and take a look at it, but it was very interesting. What's that? They called them Christ killers. Called them Christ killers, yep. Yep, is the idea. Incredible, incredible stuff. So, But yeah, so Manasseh made the two courts of the house of Yahweh, the king broke them down, and he smashed them there and threw their dust into the brook Kidron. The high places, uh, verse 13, the high places, which were before Jerusalem, which were on the right of the Mount of Destruction, which Solomon, the king of Israel, now you want to take note of that, why? And if you want in your margin, right next to that, First Kings eleven seven. That's when Solomon started marrying all these other ladies, and his heart turned away from the Lord. And he immediately started erecting high places so that they could sacrifice to all of their false gods. And even the wisest man in the world did not finish his life well. He did not endure to the end. Unless, unless Ecclesiastes was written later on in his life. And he finishes up the book of Ecclesiastes with a, with a two-verse uh, devotion to the Lord about how important it is to be sold out to him and him only. So if that was the case, then he did at least finish his life well. But notice this. The Mount of Destruction, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had built for, watch them, Ashtaroth. Ashtaroth was set aside for fertility. If you want verse references for these, I can give them to you. But if you want to know, Ashtaroth was a fertility false god. The abomination of the Sidonians. And to Chemosh, 
Chemosh, his word means subdue. It also has a lot of connections to child sacrifice as well. In fact, if you want a reference for that to see where child uh, where child sacrifice is used in relation to Chemosh, 2 Kings 3.27 would be a place that you would want to go. Uh, Chemosh was the abomination of the nation of Moab, which remember Moab is related to Israel. And of Milcom. Now, Milcom, you may say, who in the world is Milcom? But if I say the word Molech, you know exactly who it is. Milcom and Molech are two names for the exact same God. Depends on where you are in geography the way that you would say it, okay? Milcom, the abomination of the sons of Ammon. Notice, the king defiled. In other words, everything that Solomon had set up that moved away from the Lord, Josiah came in and he tore it down to move everybody back toward the Lord. Verse 14, he broke in pieces the sacred pillars and cut down the ashram, same thing as Asherah, the ashram, and filled their places with human bones. Now, here's the thing. Why did he do that? I don't have a clue. But I think maybe what it was was to heed a warning of not trying to erect those things again because chances are if you brought the pillars down, even if you sawed them down to the ground, like you would do, try to do a stump the best that you can. You know the people have got to back in stump grinders just to get them out from inside of the ground. Maybe he filled those pits with bones in order to discourage anybody from trying to re-erect those things if they had that, that thought in their heart to do that. So anyway, verse 15, Furthermore, the altar that was at Bethel, and the high places which Jeroboam the son of Nebat. Now I'm going to ask you to make a note of that. Because when we get into Deuteronomy 12, starting in verse 5, it starts to take off about the theology of sacred spaces. And the problem with the theology of sacred spaces comes back to one person, and that is Jeroboam. And so we're actually going to go through and see the mentions of his name and how all the kings of the north suffered from his sin. His sin trickled down because they started doing the exact same thing because the pattern had been set before them to do that. They did not listen to God's word. They continued in error and how, how much of a problem that is. So Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin, notice that, Jeroboam's sin, the sin of Jeroboam, if you want to write that to the side, uh, had made even that altar and the high place he broke down, then he demolished its stones, ground them to dust, and burned the Asherah. Now here's why that's important. The big reason why the northern kingdom fell was the sin of Jeroboam. And so notice, not only is Josiah cleaning house in the southern region of Judah, but when he crosses over the border and gets into Bethel, he takes care of all that garbage there as well. And he didn't have to. You see, that's what's interesting. Those people had already been judged, dealt with, carried off into captivity into Assyria, and then Babylon came up later and conquered Assyria and took their captives there into Babylon. That's how you still have a contact of 12 tribes in one place. Well, if the north went here and two tribes of the southern went down this way to Babylon, uh, does that make sense to everybody when I do this geographically? Does that make sense? Okay. So the northern part coming over to Assyria, the southern part coming over to Babylon. Well, why is it not just Benjamin and Judah down here? There are some people who claim to be Messianic Jews that say, no, it's actually not going to be with the 12 tribes. It's just going to be with Judah because they're the only ones that come over. Stop for a second. The Babylonians are the ones who came up and conquered Assyria. So any slaves or anybody that they had up there that they had taken in from their plundering of the northern kingdom actually came down and was incorporated in the kingdom. What happened? God actually brings the 12 tribes back together in captivity in this place. So notice, God's pretty amazing how he's going to do all of that stuff. Um, let's see here. Uh, verse 16. Now, when Josiah turned... He saw the graves that were there on the mountain. This is so cool, I can't even talk to you about it because we're running out of time. There on the mountain. And he sent and he took the bones from the graves and he burned them on the altar and defiled it. Now watch this. This is important. According to the word of Yahweh, 
which the man of God proclaimed who proclaimed these things. Now you might say, what in the world does that mean? Let me give you a reference. This is your homework for the week. 1 Kings 13, verses 1 through 10. 1 Kings 13, verses 1 through 10. And so from verses uh, 16, 17, 18, all of those together, what makes sense of that according to the word of the Lord is because what Josiah is doing right now is actually prophesied in 1 Kings 13. And what's interesting in it is it's not just Nostradamus says that the end of the world is going to happen in the future sometimes. And everybody buys the National Enquirer because they want to know more details about it. And find it's nothing. It's all this general junk because they can't tell the end. What's interesting is, is Josiah is actually mentioned by name as the person who does this in 1 Kings 13. So it's a way of scripture, authenticating scripture, because prophecy is literally coming true. So when it says, according to the word of the Lord, it's because the Lord spoke through a prophet saying, this is going to happen. Your bones are going to be burned on this altar like this. Very interesting stuff. How many years earlier was that? Uh, I don't know. What is Sorry. To ask me questions. <laughs> Um, I don't That's know. Part of our homework. That's part of our homework. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Which means you Google it. That's what it means. Um, well, here's the thing. It's during the time of Jeroboam. Jeroboam would be right after the time oh, of, sure. of Solomon. Uh, so if that happens, what was it? 940 BC? I think. Yeah, like three, four. Oh, gosh. Three or four hundred years or something. It's terrible. Yeah. Possibly something. Well, here's the thing. It would have been. More. It would have been possibly 350 years, I'll give an estimate, because in 586 is when the southern yeah. kingdom is taken away. Right. This is a this is a uh, forgiveness period kind of idea for the moment. So how that would work out, yeah, I, I, I won't research that either, so let me not pretend that I will. Uh, I'll try to no, look that, into that's it. That's close enough. I'm taking a class this week, <laughs> and it's lasting all week, so I, I will try to get to it. But yeah, Google it. It'll be good. Bible Hub, right? Everybody does that. Uh, but yeah, it probably would have been about 350 years before that happened. So notice, um, let's see here. In verse 17, then he said, what is this monument that I see? And the men of the city told him. Now notice, they were familiar with their history. And they say here, it is the grave of the man of God who came from Judah and proclaimed these things which you have done against the altar of Bethel. Notice, somebody came from the southern kingdom and preached to the northern kingdom about all the messed up stuff that they were in straying away from the Lord. Okay? So that's what you're seeing here. You're seeing the, the exact role of a prophet. He said, let him alone. Let no one disturb his bones. So they left his bones undisturbed with the bones of the prophet who came from Samaria. Verse 19, Josiah also removed all the houses of the high places, which were in the cities of Samaria, up in the north, which the kings of Israel, up in the north, had made provoking Yahweh. And he did to them just as he had done in Bethel. All the priests of the high places who uh, were there, he slaughtered on the altars and burned human bones on them. Then he returned to Jerusalem. So not only is he cleaning house in the south, he's cleaning house in the north. Now, 21 through 27, we're in the home stretch. Here's what we see. Then the king commanded all the people, saying, Celebrate the Passover to Yahweh your Elohim, as it is written in this book of the covenant. Surely such a Passover had not been celebrated from the days of the judges who judged Israel, nor in all the days of the kings of Israel in the north and the kings of Judah in the south. In other words, from the time that Joshua passed off the scene, they had not properly kept the Passover as they should have, from that moment of Joshua's death and what happened right after him 
up until this time of when Josiah instituted these reforms of the people. It says here, verse 23, But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was observed to Yahweh in Jerusalem. Moreover, Josiah removed the mediums and the spiritists, the fortune tellers, and the teraphim. The teraphim is an interesting word. It just means carved images or idols. Engraved images is the idea. It's just a, a different name for calling them that. And the idols of all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might confirm the words of the law which were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of Yahweh. In other words, he not only cleans everybody of pagan worship, false god worship, but he makes sure that if there is anything of witchcraft or the occult, he gets rid of it all. Burning their tarot cards, burning their crystal balls, whatever it is, as we would equate that today, all of it gone. There's no place for it. All their Ouija boards were done. So, verse 25, before him... There was no king like him. This is really important to see. Before him, there was no king like him who turned to Yahweh with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Now you might say, well, wait a second. What about David? Wasn't David a man after God's own heart? Yes, but David did not once be in opposition to Yahweh and then turn back to him. David was always a believer and lover of Yahweh. We're talking about massive repentance here. We're talking about the idea of this person's mind was completely changed because he read God's word. So something like that had never happened, had never happened since then. Verse 26, however, Yahweh did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath with which his anger burned against Judah because of all the provocations with which, and here it is, Manasseh had provoked him. That's why he is the worst of those kings of Judah, because he's the one that really set it off with Yahweh. Verse uh, 27, Yahweh said, I will remove Judah also from my sight, as I have removed Israel, and I will cast off Jerusalem, this city which I have chosen, and the temple of which I said, my name shall be there. Pretty amazing. When somebody actually hears God's word and does what it says, it's incredible. It's incredible. The most dangerous thing on the face of the earth is a Christian who truly believes what they believe. Because what you find is evangelism is no longer a problem. Discipleship is no longer a problem. Standing on the inerrancy of God's word is no longer a problem. It's just natural, normal, and true. That's all it is. And I tell you what, I encourage you, if for some reason there's something that holds you back from holding fast to God's word, don't any longer. Look at Josiah's response to God's word. Having a tender heart. If you don't have a tender heart, tell God you don't have a tender heart. Uh, a tender heart. Let him tenderize it. He's really good at that. He's really good at digging up the hard dirt and creating follow ground that he works from. And Josiah was extremely blessed from this. Now, I didn't keep on reading. Josiah dies eventually, and it's not a good death that he dies. He's actually murdered. Uh, but it doesn't change the fact of what he did in setting the precedence as a leader, as a leader for his people. That was something that's forever recorded in God's divine word. It's incredible. So any thoughts or questions before we wrap this up? I'm, I'm sorry that we got started a little bit late. We'll, we'll continue on with Deuteronomy 12 when we go back, pick up with verse 4 and move forward. And we'll begin talking about the different offerings that come about and especially the theology of sacred spaces because we've seen a little bit about Jeroboam. We'll probably go ahead and hit that and then go through the offerings after that. So 
I appreciate you guys. Thank you so much. Let's pray. Father, thank you for an example uh, of someone who uh, was living uh, probably wayward. Uh, it strayed from you, but when he heard your word, he responded. He took it seriously. He recognized that there was something greater than what everybody was settling for in life. And because he, he grabbed a hold of it, he humbled himself before you, Lord. You blessed him tremendously. Thank you, God, for what a great example. And may we, too, address sin and, and, and witchcraft and garbage that wants to seep its way in our lives with the same type of zeal that Josiah had. We thank you, God, uh, for showing this to us and, and documenting it for us in your word. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, everybody.